Well, thank you for being a part of this day of gathering together. It is good to be back with you. And I am excited seven days from now. Anybody know what's happening? Yeah. In case you couldn't make that out, it's Easter. Yeah. Now, I promise you, you're not crazy. It's just the fact that we as a church have been working our way through Luke's story, the Gospel of Luke. And we have come to the end of the story, and the end of the story is Jesus rises from the dead. And so next week, we are calling it Easter. And so we're inviting everybody to be a part of the celebration. Some of you may have always said, man, I I wish there could just be this Easter where all the other stuff that gets attached to Easter that's not really Easter wouldn't be there. Well, guess what? This is it. This is it. So next week, we want you to be a part. I I know that there are going to be some extra things happening at at, uh, each of the locations next week. I think some breakfast and that kind of stuff. There will be information on the website. Um, But we want you to invite some folks. There's even some invite cards. It's got Easter in June, right? You'll get a double take when you you invite somebody to Easter in June. But I I think next week is going to be a great day. I want to invite you to invite as many people as you can. Let's gather as his church and let's celebrate again the greatest event in all of history. But before there was Easter, there was a grave. And that's where we are in Luke's story this week. And if ever, if ever we would say there is a time of despair, It is this part of the story. And yet, amid the gut punch of betrayal and abandonment and grief, there is this flicker of light that shines into the darkness. It is a story that I have realized over these last several weeks in in preparing for, for this talk. It is a story that I have needed more times than I realized in my life. A story that encourages me and gives me direction in those moments that I feel like the breath has been knocked out of me. Today, I share it with you. Here's the story, Luke chapter 23. We start with verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision. Now, their decision is the, is the council, right? It's those who have, who have arrested and, and they, have, they have killed Jesus. He had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience 
to the commandment. The story that we look at today revolves around this man, Joseph, and we often refer to him as Joseph of Arimathea. It distinguishes him from the other Josephs that we know in story or in scripture, but it's interesting to me that this little story about Joseph of Arimathea, it is in all four of the Gospels. Every one of the Gospel writers record this story, and it provides a priceless lesson. Have you ever found yourself in circumstances? And maybe those circumstances turn into a season of life. A gap between when some hurt occurs. In this particular case, loss has occurred. And there is no sign of a resurrection. And you're trying to decide your next move. The problem is you're in a fog of confusion. What begins to happen in the fog is that that doubt creeps in and fear creeps in. And in this particular case, you're dealing with grief. What do you do? The answer, I believe, is found in Joe's story today. What he did and what it took for him to do it. Now, I told you, this story is found in all four of the Gospels, and so I'm going to use all four to point out different parts of this most incredible lesson that we can learn today. We're going to start with Mark. Here's what Mark tells us in Mark chapter 15, verse 43. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went, everybody say boldly. He went boldly to Pilate, and asked for Jesus' body. Now, when I read that, there's a part of me that would tend to want to interpret that. This is a bad dude. Like, here's a dude that doesn't care what anybody else thinks. Here's a dude who is secure in who he is and what he believes. But John gives us a little more to this picture. John tells us in chapter 19, later Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. Now, when I read that part of the story, that brings a whole new understanding of the word bold. And when I think of Joseph's action today, it involves this word bold. He has followed Jesus for some time, but he followed how? Secretly. Because he's pulled between. He's pulled between who he believes he sees Jesus to be versus who all the people around him tend to see Jesus to be. He's walked this tightrope for years where he is drawn to the heart of Jesus while most of his peers oppose Jesus. He's a prominent leader. He is a Pharisee. 
He's a member of the council. That's the Jewish council. That's the Sanhedrin. That's the ruling council for the nation. This man has power. This man has prestige. This man is well respected throughout even the land. But this conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees has been boiling up for years and now we've seen how it ends. So if you're a Pharisee, to honor Jesus by burying his body is to surrender your position of security. It is, in a sense, to defect to the other side that in this case appears to lose. So, like why now, Joseph? (laughs) Like what changed? Why would you now suddenly choose to be bold? And I believe the answer is short. The cross. The cross. The same cross that I will remind you when you're reading the story, a Roman soldier who stands at the very foot of that cross declares when Jesus dies, surely this man was the son of God. Amazing things happened at the foot of that cross and apparently one of those things was this man named Joseph of Arimathea. Something happened in him. Now in a few minutes... We're going to read a scripture that confirms the fact that Joe had some help on this day. Help from another Pharisee, a man that perhaps you will recognize his name, Nicodemus. Now that's significant because I am convinced that the faith that Joseph had in Jesus, I believe is connected to a conversation that Nicodemus has with Jesus that's actually recorded in the Bible in John chapter 3. It's the most famous chapter that contains the most famous verse, right? For God so loved the world. That's the conversation. And I think Nicodemus' questions to Jesus are really also Joseph's questions to Jesus. Here's why I think so. When, when, the, when the conversation is recorded in John chapter 3, Nicodemus goes to Jesus at night, and this is what he says. Rabbi, we, we know that you are a teacher come from God. What does we mean? It means more than Nicodemus. It means there are more of us. Jesus, there are more Pharisees like me. And I'm saying in this case, I think the we includes Joseph here. And the conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus says you got to be born again. Remember that conversation? Not, Not born again physically, but born again spiritually. And Nicodemus' question is how can this be? And Jesus' response in John chapter 3 is just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Fast forward from John chapter 3 to the story today. There stands Joe. And Nick 
And I don't know if there were other, any other Pharisees or not, but there they stand among the crowd. And as they look over the top of that crowd, they slowly see Jesus being raised on that vertical stake. And first they see his head. And then they see his neck. Then they begin to see his chest and his arms stretched wide. And that is when it clicks with Joe. This is what Jesus meant when he said, just like Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, this is what Jesus was talking about. Jesus knew this was the plan all along. You enter the kingdom of God not through good behavior, but through faith in the one that God has sent on behalf of all humankind. And in that moment, Job can hold back no longer. No longer is secret a part of the conversation in describing how he's going to follow Jesus, right? Whatever it cost, whatever his position, whatever his reputation, he has watched Jesus bleed and he has watched Jesus die. It was confirmed with a spear from the soldier through Jesus' body. It pushes Job to prove his boldness by doing the unthinkable. He goes to Pilate and he asks for the body of Jesus. Let me give you a little history on this. When a person was crucified, Rome would not allow anybody, including the family of that person, to take the body. There was no proper burial for a person who was crucified. Rome would often leave those bodies on crosses for days and days, sometimes even into weeks. I realize this is it's gross, but it is just the part of the story. The birds would feast on those bodies, on those crosses. Those bodies would begin to rot. The reason... It was long before Texas, the message for Rome was don't mess with Rome. They would eventually pry those bodies off the cross. They would put them in a wagon with the other dead bodies. And they would haul them to the valley of Gehenna. Which was a valley on the southwest side of Jerusalem home to an ever-burning garbage dump and city sewer. And they would dump those crucified bodies in a mass grave and no one was allowed to mourn the deaths. It was as if that person had never lived. But if you had money... How many times does that seem to be a part of the story of our world? But if you had money, there was a chance. 
If you had money, there was a chance that you could reclaim the body of a loved one that had been crucified, but you would have to pay. But the way you would do it is you would actually go to the driver of the cart the driver of the wagon on his way to the valley of Gehenna, and you would stop him with an amount of money that said, hey, can I have the body for this much? And maybe the driver of the wagon will look left so that you could take the body and go right. But it was unthinkable to go to the very person who had prescribed the actual crucifixion and say, I I care so much about this criminal, can I take his body? But that is exactly what Joseph does. I'm telling you, this is bold. This is, I'm not ashamed anymore. I'm not in secret anymore. I don't care what this costs me. I am going to honor Jesus. Hmm. Just a thought over the last several weeks as I'm reading through this story. Have you noticed today that in our culture, if somebody takes a stand for Jesus and it costs them, like maybe it even threatens their job, I've noticed that it is the case that unfortunately sometimes one of the first things that happens is the religious people put a quick evaluation on, did that really need to happen that way? In terms of, did that person, did they they really need to say what they said? Like, like did they did they go too far? Don't don't they know how to how to how to say this in a way that that have you have you noticed that in our culture if somebody loses something because they declare Jesus, it is often the religious people who are the quick to evaluate. Could they have done this differently? I'm only saying that because I'm telling you, when we get to the book of Acts, which is just a couple of weeks away, for those of you that don't know, the book of Acts is sort of like the second volume to Luke. Luke writes Luke. He keeps writing through Acts. We're going to get to Acts in just a few weeks, and we're going to find out the greatest evidence of the Holy Spirit in a person's life is boldness to testify about Jesus. I'm not talking about being a jerk, but I'm talking about a boldness that is something far beyond what we see in the typical American church. Joe had boldness. Let me show you something else. Here's where Nicodemus enters the story. John chapter 19, verse 39. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, The man who earlier had visited Jesus at night, that's John chapter 3, Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes about 75 pounds. Let's jump to verse 41. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. But then it's actually Matthew who closes the gap for us, and Matthew tells us, and Joseph placed it, that's the body, in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. I want you to understand that this move by Joe was not just bold. 
this move by Joe is costly. Now, I don't know what this cost Joseph in terms of his position on the council. My guess, it cost him a lot. I, just seeing how the council has responded to all the, all the other people who align with Jesus, I cannot imagine that the word gets out that here's what Joseph of Arimathea did. I cannot imagine that it did not cost him greatly. But I do know it cost him financially. I, I don't know if, if Joseph had to pay Pilate off. Like, I don't know if, if Pilate required some money. We're not told if that's the case. But I do know that a family tomb carved out of rock in that day was a significant matter of wealth. And I know that 75 pounds of spices is a significant amount of wealth. Now, the Jews did not embalm. When we think of when people die and we think of an embalming process, the Jews did not embalm bodies. They wrapped them. And so they would take spices, they would coat the body in those spices, they would begin to wrap the body with linen, they would work the spices in between the wrapping, and then eventually when all the wrapping was done, they would put even more spices on top. The, the whole point was to cover up the smell. 75 pounds. You know how much that weighs? Like you familiar with that? Some of you who travel a little bit and you know that the suitcase can only be 50 pounds. It's pretty heavy. 75 pounds, that's four times what would normally be used to embalm a body. Do you remember the woman who shows up at the Pharisee's house that day when Jesus is there for dinner? And she has a jar of perfume, a pint of pure nard, a pint. And she breaks that jar open and pours it on Jesus' feet. Remember that story? And Judas got bent out of shape, didn't he? Because why? That jar of perfume was a year's wages, a year's salary. Now, he's playing the holy card, right? Do you, can you imagine how many people could be fed with that, right? But don't miss the point. This jar of perfume worth a year's wages. How about 75 pounds? How much money are we talking? How much financially is connected here? I, I'm going to tell you, honestly, earlier in ministry, there was a time when it really I'm going to use the word bothered because it is. It bothered me to talk about following Jesus and how it affects a person in terms of generosity. And I don't know, some of it may be just years of walking this out, but hopefully some of it is growth on my part. It does not bother me as much anymore because here's what I have discovered. The people who truly know who Jesus is do not hold back their resources from honoring the king. When you really see Jesus' sacrifice you realize that money is not sacrifice. It is an opportunity to honor the king and the king's mission 
that he has allowed us to be a part of. I, I would encourage you, uh, don't argue with people about giving. Yeah, you, you teach it and you encourage it, but don't argue with people about giving. You keep your eye on the king and you keep responding to him in love. And the promise that always has been made is still true for where your money is. There your heart will be also. Joe knows it's costly. He still acts. Let me give you one more piece. Mark chapter 15, verse 46. Look at what this says. So Joseph bought some linen cloth. Now don't miss this because I, I honestly have never paid attention to this the way that I did this time. Took down the body. Wrapped it in the linen and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Now the word I'm going to pick here is the word uncomfortable. The action by Joe here, I, there's, there's some other words that I could use, but I'm, I'm going to go with uncomfortable. Because I'm trying to get in my head, I'm trying to imagine what it was like for Joe on that day when he goes to Pilate, he asked for the body, we tend to go, yay, and he got the body. He took the body down. That's what it says. You ever tried to carry any weight at all up or down a ladder? Trying to imagine what this moment was like for Joseph trying to take down the body of Jesus. And, and imagining the struggle, imagining the weight. I don't, I don't know how big Jesus is, but if he's average size and even with the loss of blood, we're, we're still talking, dealing with weight. And I imagine the blood. And I, I, I try to imagine Joseph, maybe in the beginning, he and Nicodemus and whoever else, maybe they're trying, like they're trying. I don't know, would you use sheets? Would you use whatever? They're trying to handle the body, but come on, you, you read what this crucifixion was like. You, you read what this flogging was like even before Jesus got to the cross. The blood, the, the amount is enormous. And I, somehow I imagine as Joe is trying to handle Jesus' body, and it, it, it's slippery. It's slippery. And the more he slips, the more he tries to get his arms around the body of Jesus. And at some point, his face touches and I don't know why. I just have this picture in my head. There's some moment where Joe, after struggling, just full on puts his arms around Jesus. And he just holds on for a moment. He just holds him as tight as he can hold him. takes him to a tomb and you realize to wrap the body it 
it means you would see every single wound. You wrap his feet, you see where the nails were. Every part of his flesh that the Bible describes was just shredded. A spear, when you get to his side, and even his head, a crown of thorns, a beard that has been pulled out. If you wrap his body, you see every single wound. Uncomfortable. The action by Joe was uncomfortable. And it was costly. <laughs> the amount of money... The spices, the tomb. Come on, Joe, he's, he's already dead, man. Do, do you know what you could do with that money? And it requires a boldness, right, that puts your life as you know it as risk. You could lose your position. You could lose your power. You could lose all the respect that you have spent your entire life building. So come on, Joe, why? Why? this why bury Jesus this way and I think that I can help us with the answer and I'm going to give you another story to hopefully encourage you today and help us link this lady her name is Elizabeth Elliot and some of you If you've been around church for a period of time, you might recognize her name. She is the wife of a famous missionary martyr named Jim Elliott, who along with his four missionary friends were speared to death on a beach in Ecuador. Ecuador was the place that their family went to share the good news about Jesus and perceived to be a threat. There was a certain tribe there that took his life. But Elizabeth Elliot stayed several more years to share the good news of Jesus with the very same people who had killed her husband. I I want you to hear this. Let me read this to you a little bit. She said, I was faced with many confusions and uncertainties. I had a good many new roles besides that of being a single parent and a widow. I was alone on a jungle station that Jim and I had manned together. I had learned to do, I had to learn to do all kinds of things which I was not trained or prepared in any way to do. Here's what she said. So I went back to my station and when she first went, she took her 10 month old baby with her. Now, this photo is a little bit older than that, but come on. A woman with a 10-month-old baby. And here's what she said. I tried to take each duty quietly as the will of God for that moment. She said there was the church the church that now had about 50 brand new baptized Jesus followers. 
She said Jim was the one who taught them every day. He was the one who would, who would preach, right, on, on Sundays, but Jim wasn't there anymore. And she said, so I took two of the young men that Jim had identified as possible leaders. She said, I explained to them that it was not my job to lead that church, but it was their responsibility to take the next step. She said, every day, every week, they would gather with me. I would, I would give them a few verses of scripture. I would help them to unpack and understand what those verses would mean. She would help them form a sermon, and then on Sunday, they would, they would stand up and preach those sermons that she could have preached way better than they did. But she said, that's what we had to do. And then, next verse, ne- next line, she says, and what do I know about diesel generators? She said, I know nothing about diesel motors, but we got this generator that needs to be used for a couple of hours every afternoon, and so I had to figure out how to run a diesel motor. She said, I had to figure out how to clean the airstrip for the plane to be able to, to get in and out when needed. She said, I would have to pay about, about 40 of, of the locals with machetes to do that work, which made me the foreman. She said, I've never been a foreman of anything in my life. She said, I was teaching a women's literary, uh, literacy class. We had a boys' school taught by an Ecuadorian teacher who, who I had to supervise and encourage and pay and do a whole bunch of stuff that I've never had to do before. She said, I had to do the medical work. She said, I had to help translate the rest of the book of Luke. She and her husband had, been, had developed a rough translation. There was no Bible in the language of this tribe. She said, but if they're going to ever grow, they got to have food. And so she went back to work on the translation of Luke. She said, I even tried to decide what to do about a hydroelectric system that Jim had begun to put in. She said, do I finish it? Do I not? And here's what she said. You can imagine how tempted I was just to plunk myself down and say, there is no way that I can do this. I wanted to sink into despair and helplessness. She said, but God gave me two things. The first thing was the verse out of Isaiah that God gave her when she went to Ecuador. Isaiah 57, it said, the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like flint and I know that I will not be ashamed. But two, God gave her, it is an old Saxon legend. And you can look it up for yourself, it's a poem, an old Saxon legend. Today, I'm just going to read you one little part of the poem. But this is one of those things that God used along with that verse out of Isaiah. Listen to what this says. Do it immediately. Do it with prayer. Do it reliantly, casting all care. Do it with reverence, tracing his hand, who placed it before thee with earnest command. Stayed on omnipotence. I mean, he's all powerful. She's talking about the God who is all powerful. Stayed on omnipotence, safe neath his wing, leave all resultings. We probably got to come back and talk about that one. But here's the line do the next thing. Do 
the next thing. Now, don't, mis- don't misinterpret this. This is not just do something to stay busy. That's not what this is. This is not just do something to keep your mind off the hurt that you have experienced. No, this is do the next thing to honor Jesus. Do the next thing to honor Jesus. And I'm submitting to you, that's exactly what Joseph did on that day long ago at the cross. What do you do? Jesus has died. You do the next thing that honors Jesus. Have you ever found yourself in circumstances? And maybe those circumstances have turned into a season. Maybe you're still in it and you go, I feel like the gap, I feel like it's Saturday. I feel like Friday has happened, loss has happened, hurt has happened, abandonment has happened, everything has happened, and there is no sight of a resurrection, and I am trying to figure out my next move. But in all of the hurt, I can't figure it out. The fog of confusion, the doubt, the fear, the grief, what do you do? And the answer is you do the next thing to honor Jesus. The way Paul says it in Colossians is whatever you do, whether in word or deed, you do it all to the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. There is a difference in just doing something and doing it for his glory. There is a difference in, in doing something and doing it in the, in the name of Jesus. The difference in this is what's described in that old, that old Saxon legend. It says, I'm tracing the hand of God, wherever I find myself, whatever this circumstance is, whatever hurt I'm going through, I am tracing the hand of God, recognizing he's here. And I am stayed on his omnipotence. I am stayed on his all power. And I'm gonna leave the results to him. But here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do the next thing that honors him. I'm going to do the next thing that honors Jesus. What's the next thing? Sometimes the next thing are small things. They really are. Sometimes the next things are diesel generators, right? Usually we always think the next thing is this big thing. What am I going to do from here? Sometimes it's the diesel generator. Sometimes the next thing is to fold the laundry. Sometimes the next thing is to mow the lawn. Sometimes the next thing is to pay that bill. It is to write that email. It is to make that call. It is to talk with that neighbor. Sometimes. Sometimes it's not this giant thing. Sometimes the next thing is to simply do what needs to be done next, but to do it with a heart that reaches toward God. One of the most difficult seasons I think that happens in the lives of families is when people have at least two little ones in their household. 
Man, when you've got at least two little ones in your household and it requires every arm and leg and everything else that you've got to try to provide and protect and do, there is just this weariness that comes and so many diapers that need to be changed and people that need to be fed. And and come on, if you've ever been there, you just get to this place where you just sort of sit there with this dazed look and it feels overwhelming. How do you deal with that? And the answer is you do the next thing. But the key is to do it to say, God, I'm feeling overwhelmed right now, but you know what? I recognize your hand. And I recognize your omnipotent power. I'm going to stay beneath the shelter of your wing And so much of the time, the pressure we put on ourselves is because of what we're trying to produce the results. God, I'm going to leave the results to you, and I'm just going to do the next. So if the next thing is to change the diaper, I'm going to change the diaper. And if the next thing to do is to feed the mouth, I'm going to feed the mouth. But the next thing, I'm not going to sit down and and evaluate the the 400 things that I'm going to do from now till bedtime. I'm just going to do the next thing. But the key is my heart resting in him. Sometimes it's big things. But you realize that even if you're called to do something big in those moments, you don't have to do the whole thing right that moment. Have you ever experienced the feeling of far too many burdens to bear, far too many people to take care of, far too many things on your to-do list, and you just think, I just can't possibly do this, and you start to panic, and you want to sit down and just collapse And what follows is I get to feel sorry for myself. And I'm telling you, it's not wrong to feel that. But what you do with it matters. Can you imagine the 12, the women, the absolute dejection, the perplexity when Jesus dies? They can't think of one single thing to do. And then up steps this man, looking for the kingdom of God. And he bravely asked for the body of Jesus. He could think of one thing to do, and he did it. And can you imagine how that changed the atmosphere of those who were with him? I'm going to tell you the scripture reveals the fact that the women... What does it say they do? They began to get spices, right? They're, they're going to go after the Sabbath and apply spices. Now, why, we already got 75 pounds of spices. Why are the women going to apply spices after the fact? And my conclusion is because we got two dudes in a hurry. They know they're going to need to clean this thing up. They're going to need to follow up by, by, by after the Sabbath, right? No, I, I think the answer is they simply want to follow suit, and they're watching Joseph do the one thing that he knows to do that can honor Jesus, and they're like, we are too. We are too. We're going to honor him too. In fact, it says, then they observe the Sabbath. Well, who tells them to observe the Sabbath? God tells them to observe the Sabbath. They do the next thing that's the right thing to do to honor him. When Joe takes his step, the people around him also begin to take those steps. I'm telling you that because sometimes when you do that, 
Sometimes when you do the next thing that needs to be done, sometimes you see the impact of that and sometimes you don't. In Joe's life, we see it. I would tell you the most amazing thing is that Joe's action brings certainty to the resurrection. Jeff, what do you mean? Here's what I mean. Joseph's action, boldly taking Jesus' body, burying it in that tomb, do you understand he brought certainty to the fact that Jesus was dead? In other words, they don't cart Jesus' body off to the garbage dump. What would have happened if they cart Jesus' body off to the garbage dump and then Jesus shows back in town? You know what would have happened. People would be making up stories going, he didn't really die. He didn't really die. Now, that's crazy, but they would have made up the stories, but not, not, not this way. No, no, he takes the body. They know it's dead. Rome knows exactly where that body is. They wrap him in 75 pounds, right? I mean, that's enough to kill you by itself. 75 pounds of wrap and, 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 and spices, and they know he's dead. It provides a certainty that the bodies were not confused in this whole thing because Jesus is buried in what kind of a tomb? A new one. Nobody else is buried in that tomb. Nobody gets to come up with any excuses for, oh, was it his body? Was it another body? How many bodies were there? There's no body else there except him. And it provided the certainty that his body was not stolen. Because Rome knows where he's at. Not only is a stone rolled across it, but a Roman seal is put upon it and Roman soldiers are posted to protect it. When he walks out of a tomb, there's no other explanation. Heroes. Heroes. Seven hundred years before Joseph places Jesus in that tomb. God spoke these words through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. In other words, that's what happens when you're crucified. You have done wrong. You are a criminal. You are assigned a grave with the wicked. What is that? It is the garbage dump. But 700 years earlier, the prophet said, but in Jesus' death, it will be with a rich man. And 700 years later, I don't know if Joseph realized the part he played then or if it was only uh, right when he gets to heaven that he realizes how all of this fit together. I'm only telling you that story because some of you today are going through some difficult stuff and you're trying to figure out the next step to take. And I'm just saying, God is always out front. And even if it seems like you've got to be bold and it feels like this is going to be costly and it feels like it's uncomfortable and you don't know if you can take the next step, God's always been out front. 
just like he was for Joseph 700 years before he said, this is what's going to happen. The hand of God, the power of God, the protection of God, leave the results to him. Do the next thing. Today, I want to pray for you before we wrap this up. And then we're going to sing. And it is a song that starts in the darkness and it ends with celebration of victory. So I don't think I'm asking too much from you today to say I'm asking you to sing. (laughs) I'm asking you to lift your voice. I want to encourage you to realize that when we have a moment like this, that we can pray for one another and that we can sing together about this truth. It, it, it is a part of God's design that helps us for people who here need to take a next step, do the next thing. So I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to encourage us to stand wherever you may be located, that we are standing together as one, and we are going to turn our hearts toward the one whose hand is extended to us. And ask him to help us to trust. Let's pray. God, studying this, I realize how many times, how many times I've needed this story in my life. How many times, God, I've felt a bit stunned. God, maybe it was hurt that occurred, loss that occurred. God, maybe it was betrayal that occurred. God, I think sometimes for us, it's just those moments when we're trying to serve. And God, sometimes we're not sensing that. We get discouraged. I don't know. There are just those moments, God, when we find ourselves stunned and we don't know what to do. And I'm thanking you for a most beautiful picture of a man whose faith moved from secret to bold. And today, God, might that story stir in us. There are some of us who are listening today, there are, there's a next thing we need to do. For some of us, it's very simple. For some of us, it might be something small. It's, it's taking care of our household. It's, it's how we're loving our spouse. God, for some of us, it's, it, it's about we're, we need a time with you, God, where we're fighting for a time. God, maybe in the morning with you to center our heart. God, there are small habits sometimes that that's our next step. I'm praying today that you'll give us courage and boldness that whatever the cost and no matter how uncomfortable, God, we will take the next step. Together as we join our voices and we sing this truth, God, may we see your hand and may we know your power. May we leave the results to you and do the next thing. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen.